Hello, welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the satellite applications Catapult. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. In this episode, we're going to be exploring drone technology and its applications. And I'm joined in the studio by Liam Brager. He's the business development lead at the Satellite Applications Catapult. Anthony Lawrenson, director of Volant Autonomy. And Liam Flood, drone technology lead at Ajuno. Drones have become an increasingly popular technology, safe to say, in recent years, with applications ranging from aerial photography and videography to search and rescue, agriculture, and even package delivery. And despite their versatility, however, drones remain a somewhat controversial technology, as you'll know, with concerns about privacy and safety and their impact on the environment. In this episode, we will be flying high into the world of drones, exploring their history, the technology, and the future possibilities. We'll also be discussing some of the key challenges facing the drone industry, the various regulations and policies that govern their use, and a new facility that the Catapult has just opened in Buckinghamshire to offer support to UK drone companies. Welcome, Anthony, Liam, and Liam. Thanks for coming in today. Should we start with like Drone 101? Like, should we start like right at the beginning with... Because I think when people, when they hear the word drone, we, we, you kind of think of people sticking GoPros on things and all kinds of things with drones. Well, what do we mean by drones? Well, we were discussing this just before we started, but generally people's association with drones. And in fact, we, for one point, we banned the D word because the negative gonna, connotations maybe, with Maybe it. we should start that. Maybe we can do a new well, term. So we, we actually had it, that conversation when we were deciding what to name our drone test and development centre and you know, very quickly learned from public consultation that we should you know, avoid the word drone port because the connotations of it were hundreds of horrible little you know, yeah. Mavic drones flying in and out all the time. And the connotations of drones in the UK seem to be the, the annoying kid that keeps losing their drone over the fence. Exactly. Or a watchkeeper or a predator. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. There seems to be nothing in between in the public knowledge of, of drones. And I think, it's far I think, from the truth. Yeah, and also, I mean, I suppose there's, people have funny ideas about security and safety. And I don't know, there's, there seems to be kind of moral panics every so often. But we're seeing this kind of proliferation of drones. I mean, we weren't talking about drones, we probably were, sort of 10 years ago or so, but suddenly we're seeing this. There's around 5 million uncrewed aircraft around at the moment. By 2040, estimated 86 million. So there's a lot on the way. So when you say when we say drones, basically we just mean... Uncrewed, yeah, uncrewed flying flying right across the sphere. Yeah, so yeah. everything from kids with sticking GoPros on them to shoot their holiday movies through to everything else that we've discussed. So, just maybe you could just sort of introduce your companies. Like, so Anthony Volant, just maybe just tell us a little bit about what you do, and then Liam will come to you, and then other Liam, you can tell us about how you how you stitch it all up. Not stitch it all up, how you 
tie it together. Tie it together, kind of manage manage this particular sector. Okay, so from Volant's perspective, when we look at drones that most people have been associated so far, we're looking at really various versions of sophistication in remote-controlled aircraft. So it's you've replaced the pilot on board with a controller on the ground. So there are, in our opinion, significant limitations with that. So we want to bring and keep the intelligence on board the aircraft as well as on the ground to mimic what happens in today's aviation system. Okay, here's a stupid question. Why Why do we need drones? Like, what is the purpose of them? What's the point of them? What's oh, the fundamentally, why do you have yeah, a drone company? Yeah, fundamentally. Like- well, basically, because there's just a massive potential to improve quality of life. They're just an amazing piece of technology. And like any technology, it's not the technology itself, it's how it's applied. And unfortunately, we started off talking about the negatives, but we could probably just whip around for the next uh, few minutes just talking about some of the positives. Okay, well, uh, the, the well let's do that. So we've got this, we've established there's a kind of a slight sort of ambiguous, perhaps negative connotation to the word drone. But tell us some of the things that you're excited about. Some of the early uses, uh, again, we were discussing before we, uh, before we went live, talking about the use of drones for blue light services. Just that, that ability to improve real-time intelligence uh, to coordinate slim resources. Uh, we've seen them right across agriculture, looking at soil and, 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 uh, and plant health. There's a search and rescue field that uh, seems to be accelerating. Moving forward, we're starting to see the early shoots of a, of a logistical supply chain, an airborne logistical supply chain, so we don't need uh, necessarily to rely on road and rail and uh, sometimes some of the less uh, sustainable forms of transport. And then further in the future, using uh, drones or uncrewed aerial vehicles, UAVs, uh, to transport people around in a sustainable and uh, scalable manner. EV tolls, is that what they're called? EV tolls, air taxis. Air taxis. This is one of the, you know, from the Jetsons way back when we've been thinking. Flying cars. Flying cars and such. Is it a thing? I mean, I hear, depends on who you speak to, I suppose. There's a lot. Seems to be a lot of... Yeah. A lot of money going into, a lot of people talking about it. Yeah, around uh, somewhere between 10 and 12 billion, I think, last year. Uh, over 700 projects globally, uh, 360 companies uh, involved in the development of um, these air taxis. But I think a lot of that is just driven by the sheer potential that this market could bring. First, the market is going to be massive for whoever gets there. However, the reality and design of some of these aircraft are optimistic. It's a massive market waiting to happen, Liam. So uh, from, uh, yeah. from Ajuno, is that how pronounced or Ajuno? Yeah, so it's so it's pronounced Ajuno. Ajuno. Yeah, from okay. the Latin to unite. And eVTOLs, as an example, you know, there's a huge opportunity there to decarbonize the logistics chain. You've got cities where people are traveling around predominantly by car, by heavy vehicles such as lorries. You know, you have the opportunity to move people more efficiently in a lower carbon way using eVTOLs um, around those sort of busy urban environments. We, we hear a little, I mean, I remember, I don't know, a couple of years ago or a year or so ago, Amazon were talking about delivering packages via drone. And I, and I mm. thought it was kind of a joke, but maybe it's not a joke. Or I mean, is, is that is that an idea to be able to sort of transport goods around? It's using, happening now. Is so, it? Yeah, yeah, started, yeah, there's yeah. some really great case studies. So. Yeah. Give us an example. because I, I, I think, I think I, a really positive uh, one is a company called Zipline that operate across Africa. And they've been operational for a number of years now, delivering sort of life-saving blood packages, medicines to rural and remote communities using fixed-wing drones. So 
you know, they can give um, doctors the necessary medicines that they mm -hmm. need to treat their patients much faster than it would be to move those medicines from a healthcare facility in your city out to those rural areas. And how, I mean, how does it work? Do you kind of... I mean, I can imagine... We, no, normally when you see people flying drones, I mean, we use them for filming, obviously. Th th it's in the line of sight of the person who's got a control yeah. panel. So how on earth do you send... Um, emergency supplies across rural Africa on a fixed wing. I mean, how does it work? Do, like, where is the controller, and do you need a runway? And so, in ziplines, example, in Africa, they're launching them using a catapult. But predominantly, when you operate beyond visual line of sight, you're you're taking sort of the pilot with direct line to the drone out of the equation, and you're you're flying more by um, means of sort of sensors and cameras that are fitted on the on the aircraft itself that send, send a signal back to an operator. So you would still have an operator somewhere watching what's happening, um, watching what's going on, just then don't have direct visual with the drone so you, itself. So there's cameras on it, so they, they, someone on the ground can cameras see Cameras on it on. and automated flight paths as well. So the drone will fly itself essentially, and in Zipline's example, it will drop a package at a known sort of GPS point. Um, that goes down by parachute, turns around, comes home. That's amazing. And, yeah. and just because most people, I think, I, I certainly do, I think of drones as with kind of rotary. Yeah. Rotary. Is, is that the main, or are they, is it kind of. It's a, it's a lot easier to operate um, uh, aircraft that can take off vertically. Yeah. It just gives that yeah. operational flexibility. As soon as you start, as in Zipline's case, operating off catapult, just getting those kinetic forces for, for you know, because conventional in, in commercial aviation, et cetera, you use a runway. Uh, that's infrastructure, yeah. which people want to avoid at the moment. So what seems to be popular is this idea of eVTOL. So you've got vertical takeoff and landing, a bit like the, the like a, a quadcopter. Yeah. But when you transition then into forward flight, you've got a fixed wing. So you can right. take the efficiencies, uh, particularly for longer range flight. So you get a bit of benefit from both. And that seems to be, in the logistical world, the most popular solution. Um, from the catapult, not that catapult, the other catapult, the satellite applications catapult, uh, Liam, what's your kind of role in all of this? You've got the companies doing exciting things with drones. Where do, you, where do you fit so in? So we, we as a, a government-funded research and technology organisation tried to tie that together. So some of the, the systems that Liam um, and Anthony have mentioned that enable beyond visual line of sight are very heavily reliant on satellite communications. If you move outside of, particularly in the UK, well-populated areas, you don't have a great terrestrial network of, say, 5G, which enables that data to be transmitted back to the operator. So we look at how satellites can add resilience to those uh, functionalities, essentially. We also have our drone test and development centre over in Westcott that has uh, a runway and takeoff stands that enables people to come and test their drones' capabilities uh, within a safe environment. And is that that's where are you based there? Do you sort of we we have two uh, main sites in the UK, one in Harwell, but our drone test and development facility is permanently based in Westcott. I'm interested, like, if you're working there, what what, it, what what the kind of average day looks like? Does people just sort of rock up with their drones and and, and, and go right? We're going to 
try this, so try that. If, I mean, uh, if only. So no, it's, it's quite controlled in terms of airspace. We have to operate it that way under CAA regulations to, to ensure safety and compliance. We have a, a number of tenants that are based there permanently, like companies like Skyports that operate some of their operations throughout the world from our site. So some of the examples that were mentioned earlier of the utilization of drones, uh, you know, ship to shore delivery uh, of documents sort of general uh, environmental monitoring mm. on a daily basis, particularly within the UK, there are a lot of underserved communities, particularly in, say, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland or you know, some of the smaller islands off the coast of the UK, where drones are flown beyond visual line of sight to deliver things like chemotherapy medicine out to, to GP practices there. And that's good. That's all going on at the moment. That's actually happening. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's I, today. I, it's going on in the, in, in the Solent as well. Apian and Skylift have yeah. got a um, using eVTOLs because the NHS um, were forced to uh, shut down the ability to produce chemotherapy drugs on the Isle of Wight, and certainly during the, uh, the pandemic immunosuppressed patients having to cross on the ferry to go to the mainland to the hospital in Portsmouth to receive their treatment and back, which is obviously a less than ideal situation. So there was an obvious early use case. I think you, both Liam's brought it up earlier on. These early social benefit use cases are starting to sort of pave the way. Yeah, I'm coming back to the pandemic as well. Even more simple things like pathology being flown around, sending test kits out to people in remote areas and returning those. Um, back to labs to be analysed and provide people there. Are you COVID positive diagnosis? Mm. Um, so those are, are real world use cases that are happening now and have been happening for you know, quite some time in the UK. Yeah, and that alone, that use case could save the NHS millions. Yeah, yeah. If we, we had a looked, network, sorry, yeah, please, Liam, yeah. We looked at a, um, we had a very recent project where we looked at all of the great ongoing trials and projects in the medical logistics space that are using drones. And then we spoke a lot with the NHS as well. And what we were looking to understand is what are the key use cases here and what are the benefits that can be that can be brought? And how do we start to move towards making this sort of business as usual and making this almost a, a sustainable um, service that the NHS can rely on? And exactly has been been spoke about you know there's some really beneficial use cases chemotherapy to remote and rural locations lab samples so moving samples between labs um, more efficiently than is currently done and another really interesting one as well is delivery of medicines or medical products out to the community so from a local gp practice for example into directly someone's garden or someone's house you know there's work to be done to achieve that but there's huge opportunity there and it's it's sort of saying how do we bring together all the stakeholders and how do we focus down produce a bit of a pathway and a way forward to make this a reality yeah and it's unique as a form of transport and delivery to, to provide that high granularity mesh network you know if you look at the other side of the scale hs2 and i don't want that to be a debating point you, <laughs> you're paying you, you know the government are paying podcast. in excess of a billion per mile if, you, if the government looked round at what the uncrewed aviation market could provide in terms of connecting remote and rural locations and giving a, a small fraction of that to develop that kind of infrastructure, I think we could see some real benefits. Uh, does the technology exist to, to the do something like that? The technology is here. The, 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 is the, the obstacles are not technology at the moment. Pro predominantly, it is regulation at the moment, which needs to be overcome. Well, let's come, let's come to regulation in a moment. I just want to talk about the technology where are we with the technology? Because presumably all of this is dependent on batteries and obviously batteries are getting better and better and better, but are they better? Are they good enough to scale things up whereby we'll all be flying around in electric cars and Amazon will be delivering my nonsense via drone? So 
I think realistically, by sort of 2026, um, if you look at some of the competitions uh, for for the development of these technologies and you look to the likes of the MOD's Future Capabilities Group, they're investigating heavy lift at the moment where they think that they could eliminate it's in excess of 90% of non-combat helicopter flight by having drones that could have a payload capacity of 250 kilos. Really? Um, and a range of 200 kilometers. And where does that technology, is that, is that that's better batteries from, or just better design overall? A uh, little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. You know, when you're talking about sort of that long range of 200 kilometers, as Anthony said at the start, you're looking at a fixed wing craft to take advantage of that aerodynamic lift rather than your traditional quadcopters. Mm. But yeah, the, it's a mix of both. But energy density from batteries is is something that's being looked at and, and other power sources as well. I think you mentioned, is it Gadafin or Apian down on the south coast? Uh, Apian, yeah, working and, with uh, yeah, and, and Skylift. Yeah. Is that a fuel hydrogen fuel cell in there or are they battery based? I don't know whether they, I think they're battery based at the moment. I think that I know they have been looking at um, uh, hydrogen fuel cells, but whether they're using them for that particular exercise, yeah. I just don't know. Yeah. But that's certainly the way they're pointing is just to get to this sort of clean burn, uh, zero net emission yeah. uh, network. Yeah, I think sort of the the net zero emissions thing. If mm. you look at the UK's plan for net zero, a huge amount of that relies on displacing freight and logistics from the road network to other transport modalities. I just with drones making up a significant portion of that. I mean, if you drive up the M1, you see a lot of trucks, and it's hard to imagine drones carrying the same amount of kit and stuff that, that we that we see on the roads without you know yeah but it's a bit like we said you know at the beginning we, we we're not going to see drones taking over the commercial aviation industry you're not going to replace triple sevens 350s and 380s no. that's not the market we can look at certain sustainability solutions in that market but drones are providing something else they're providing something that is far more flexible mm -hmm. uh, it's clean but it's the lower scale type delivery yeah. stuff the high value low mass type stuff yes so you know as you say you're, you you can only scale down on the roads to a certain size of vehicle even if it's even if it's another car on the road that's taking high value uh, low mass stuff around that is one tick off the box in terms of it's no longer producing harmful emissions it's no longer congesting already congested roads so we've got all these all these scenarios that that drones are sort of working in we talked a little bit about where well, we mentioned sort of legislation and how how we kind of deal with the legal aspects of that and and because yeah. presumably you can't suddenly it can't just be a free for all where everyone's just flying willy nilly. No, and I, mean, I know a little. I mean, you, in terms of how regular aviation works, it's pretty strict. It, so, it's the, the most highly regulated uh, industry on the planet. Although I was pulled up once in a lecture at Cranfield. Uh, by a gentleman at the back who said his wife worked in the washing machine industry and they were well known to be oh, in the most side uh, apart from, the, yeah, apart from the washing machine industry that's hardcore no aviation's got a, <laughs> uh, a, a a pretty tough uh anybody that comes coming into that market has got a pretty tough gig to follow and what's yeah. uh, working in it what's it like do you sort of bash your head against the wall or or do you work closely with the regulators do you like them do you hate them like what's the do you, what's the kind of feeling towards 
Yeah, we work we work closely with with the regulator because you know ultimately the more that the industry can support and work with them, the greater chance we have of unlocking is it all the, of these benefits. Is, is it the CAA? Is it, is it is, yeah, yeah, Civil Aviation yeah, yeah. Authority. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, one of the key factors that you have when you move into this beyond visual line of sight flying is that you don't have the pilot the see and avoid capability as it's commonly termed. So if in crude aviation and when you're flying a drone that you can see, you have that situational awareness. You can see other aircraft, you can see buildings or structures that you may hit and therefore you stay away from them or you can take action. The technical and the regulatory issue to overcome is how do you replicate that when you're not, you can't see the drone. Mm. So there's a number of exciting things going on, whether it's sensors or airspace picture or at the moment a lot of segregated airspace. So drones flying within segregated sort of volumes of airspace so other aircraft can't go into it. That's kind of a step on the stepping stones towards unlocking the full potential. And are the CAA and, and the regulators, are they, are they quite nimble and agile as the technology gets better and as ideas... Nimble and agile are not words I'd describe the regulator, but that's a, that's a position of necessity. Um, they are supposed to be conservative, and and that yes, the thing at the job, moment, their the, first job is to yeah, be absolutely. They, 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 so. They're obliged, you know, their obligation is to society as a whole to make sure that whatever comes into this market adheres to the same safety standards. Interesting point you made, Liam, that um, see and avoid. Aircraft are flying around as we speak in and around Oxford, particularly in uncontrolled airspace. And the only mechanism that they're avoiding other aircraft is, is the presumption that the pilot can see an appropriate range and avoid. Now, if you've ever sat in a cockpit, you can't see behind you, you can't see below you, most of the time you can't see above you. In fact, a study carried out in the States called the Andrews Study uh, found that even when pilots were told another aircraft was coming into the proximity, only 50% of those aircraft were detected. So we'd be flying around with sea and avoid, which in fact comes from the age of shipping yeah. uh, and has been brought into aviation. And the only reason it's there now is for historical context. So what we can do in the drone sphere is provide a full 360 surveillance wrap around on an aircraft that can see all the time Everything. up down around so we can actually enhance those safety standards with an appropriate use of technology yeah um i mean as far as sort of being nimble and listening to the industry as well the caa today in fact has um, a period of consultation open about what's required for for test sites for autonomous air mobility uh, and uncrewed aircraft so they are they are actively listening to the market. I wouldn't say that they are leading the market at the moment in how they should approach this. They are taking a backseat and saying, how do you think we should approach right. this yeah. um, from those who are doing it now, rather than taking the view of historical aviation, which uh, I think if planes were to be invented now, they would have um, some severe concerns about you know, traditional aviation, if it was the new thing, they just happen to have a huge volume of, of safety case data historically that enables them to say that actually this is the safest mode of transport yeah. out there. That's a really, that's a, I hadn't thought of it yet. If, I suppose it is a bit like kind of inventing flight again from scratch, really. But, but it's, in, not, it's in, not just aviation. I mean, we're in this fourth industrial revolution uh, that we talk about, this electronic, you see it's across the internet. So it's not just the aviation regulator that had to take this stance. 
the subject matter experts on technology or the technologists and the innovators themselves. What the regulator does is they talk about performance-based or evidence-based regulation. So it's not on the regulator to say, this is the required safety standard. It's to the operator to prove that they can operate to a standard that is acceptable to the regulator. The regulator just sets those standards, and I think that's increasingly the way ahead. I mean, there's quite a lot of changes going on in regulation at the moment. In Europe, they have adopted SORA standards, Specific Operational Risk Assessments. The CAA first stated their intent to adopt those going into 2024. And this is really quite significant because this means that really for the first time, there is a practical way that operators can start to operate beyond visual line of sight. Right. At the drone centre, do you operate beyond visual line of sight or is it is it very much a controlled... So we have a controlled airspace with a number of flight areas uh, within the bounds of the Westcott development. So it's, a, it's an old RAF site, uh, which then became a rocket test facility, still a rocket test facility now. Um, our ambitions moving beyond that are to create a flight corridor uh, which would be for beyond visual line of sight testing and work as a convener of national capability. There are multiple sites uh, where people can test beyond visual line of sight in the UK, predominantly in areas where there is you know, very low population density, uh, where it's very unlikely that should there be a, you know, a, an issue or an accident, that the, the criticality it, it isn't high. We happen to be based uh, you know, 10 minutes from Bista Village, and Ocado's you know, b- biggest fulfillment centre in the UK. So as far as providing a venue that will be uh, you know, very useful for drones in the long term. Um, in what way are useful for drones in the long term? Uh, so uh, Ocado as an organisation um, are, are quite keen on looking at the utilisation of drones for that last mile delivery. So being located close to them, if you look at other areas of uh, sites of specialism for drone operation within the UK, like Cranfield University. They are located a stone's throw away from um, Amazon's biggest fulfillment facility in the UK. Let's imagine I'm on the the Ocado website and I order my shopping. How do drones fit in or how will drones fit into that in that scenario? So I order it, it beams to the the warehouse. Where, where, Where does the sort of drone... So in the same way as they would load it up into a transit van or onto your Uber Eats driver. If we look at Wing in Australia, so uh, Wing Wing is a drone company in Australia. You could order a coffee to be delivered to your office now. Wing have done, what, something like a million flights? Yeah, well, another... They they deliver coffee by drone. Well, another example closer to home is Manor. Yeah. Uh, So Manor, in fact, I think Wing have moved into that area. So there's a a small town just outside of Dublin, uh, Balbriggan, and we've been working with uh, Manor trying to help them uh, increase their safety and efficiency Mm. by using automatic path planning systems. So you can turn up there, ring the local Tesco's, they pop it into the hood of these EVTOLs, so you can have your pizza, your coffee... Uh, mobile phones, whatever, and then they have a pre-planned route. They take off, I think, at about four aircraft at a time simultaneously. Off they go into the local town, and a little chute drops out with a bag at uh, uh, near your house. There's your delivery. The world is going to look very different. And, and, and Well, I suppose, you know, if you live in a city, that's going to be a very difficult thing to do if everyone's ordering food. Suddenly to have that, it's the sky completely 
covered in so food delivery drones. The the figures for drones operating in the just in the UK by 2030 are something like 960,000 drones. If you look at the figures uh, PwC are predicting for heavy lift drones, so this is something capable of carrying more than a quarter of a ton, mm. looking at 250,000 of those operating at any one time globally. It's not going to be really noisy. It's definitely a consideration. Yeah, do, do, do you guys think about it? I mean, do yeah. people think about things like that? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. Yeah. There is something, there is something yeah. when you hear a drone, you can understand why people don't really like them. There's something quite annoying. It's that kind of high yeah, yeah. and, and and when you look at kind of the capabilities that we've just been talking about, such as delivery, you know, there's there's going to be public acceptance difficulties there with yeah. you know, how do you manage that? Yeah. But taking that that same use case, you can also deliver life-saving medical equipment using a drone. So there's projects at the moment looking at delivering defibrillators or emergency sort of life-saving trauma packs mm. to people who fall ill, and they can get there much quicker than an ambulance can. And, you know, the public acceptance for use cases like that yes. is, is going to be high yeah. and it's going to bring a lot of benefit and, and save save lives, which is really, really positive. And then further down the line, you know, there's the opportunity for more of the commercial market to open up with your Amazon deliveries. And, yeah. and But that's what the industry you know. has to. I know GKN are working at the moment. They're very sensitive about... Um, Who, who's this, sorry? Uh, GKN are a, a, a UK-based manufacturer down in Bristol right. who are looking at uh, some of the larger scale drones and, and, and they're very they're very aware and very sensitive to, to, to noise footprints. And we've been working on them in the same way that we balance risk and we create risk landscapes they want us to create um, noise sensitive landscapes as well so the nice thing about drones is that you can be very flexible about what routings you take so you can move things around you can choose minimal noise emission uh, and, and minimal emission routings so again it's just a case of i think the industry has to find its limit about yeah. what the public will accept yeah. well that's the thing yeah. that it, it's i'm always surprised how well, when new when new technologies appeared, the public generally throws their hands up in the air and gets and gets very cross and upset and worried, and there are moral panics. And then suddenly, you get everyone gets used to things really, really quickly. And and I suspect this may be similar. I, th I think it will be a, a sort of a, a stepwise change as well. I don't think we're going to go straight to sort of door to door delivery. I think we'll be looking more at sort of like a hub and spoke model where if you look at something like the Amazon lockers that you'll find at service stations or yes. train stations, there are drone in a box solutions that will fly to that and then packages will be distributed to the lockers and people could come and collect those. So they'll be located at sites of high traffic, like train stations, for example, where people will be able to collect that so it'll be part of uh, a logistics model. I think it it, it will be a gradual shift. Yeah, we, we're running a project uh, at the moment down in the Channel Islands, which uh, we start in 2024, and we've taken quite a lot of time out. And, and this is speaking into your space, uh, Liam, with HU Note, that we were advised to. We really saw the benefits. Of actually, going speaking to the local populace and saying, "Look, it's not for us to say." have drones is for us to say this is a technology available this is what it could bring to that particular island community and the area and we're quite keen to know what do you want because that in itself redirects the technological yeah. and innovation directions that you take how, how dependent are, are you on connectivity 
having good 5G and... and well, there's low... Yeah, so 5G is you must, useful. You must need that. Presumably. It's not an absolute. There are just... There's, there's loads of ways. What we're interested in is knowing where the drone is. Yeah. Is it behaving itself? So we have we spend a lot of time looking at conformance and we split it up into three areas. So it's either the drone is conforming, uh, non-conforming, or it's contingent. And contingent, you don't know what's going on. Now, nobody's going to remember those words, so we just call them angels, fallen angels, and demons. And you don't want to go near a demon because you don't know what it's going to do next. So, so using 5G, using ADS-B, using uh, primary and secondary radar to make sure that the drone is where you think it is, and also the technology that we're developing is is it intending to go where you want it to go? So conformance is an awful lot, uh, is, is very part, an important part of the technology. We were talking about pilots earlier, and, and I suppose lots of regulation based on having somebody in an aircraft. How important is, is AI going to be if, we, if we're removing pilots and making sure that that all works? And I mean, this is one of these subjects that we're all talking about I can at the jump moment. On, yeah. on that one, if you yeah. like. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is that the sort of the AI and machine learning and, and sort of algorithmic components of this could do everything far better in most situations than a human can. However, you're still seeing from the regulators that they would like to, even with an autonomous craft, have um, you know, a human in the loop, mm. if you will. Yeah. Um, and that's when sort of us as a satellite organization become quite important is by being able to provide you know, a high data rate anywhere to that drone so that a human can come into the loop and access all of those situational awareness tools that are on the drone, be that 4K video or whatever. But uh, I think in the long term, getting a pilot out of the loop is, is going to be the safer way of doing things. If you think about your reaction times, you know, if there is an issue with something and you're suddenly beamed into this drone to take over, um, you know, you, your reaction times are going to be significantly slower than a, a computer's just to take in the information. So, and, and yeah, it's it, it's a world. It, it's an absolute game changer. I mean, I've been in commercial aviation as a pilot for thirty-five years. So, some of the research we've looked at is when aircraft get too close. Most modern commercial aircraft have TCAS traffic collision avoidance systems, mm -hmm. which talk to each other. And basically, if they get too close, one goes up and one goes down. Mm -hmm. And it's a brilliant piece of technology, which undoubtedly has saved lives. However, in a study carried out by Eurocontrol on pilots' reactions in that short space of time that Liam was alluding to, only 38% of pilots in real-time scenarios either carried out correction in the correct sense and with sufficient input to, make, to ensure safe separation. So what you're seeing now by, certainly in Airbus aircraft, so the uh, 3, 18, 19, 20, 21 family, the A350 and the A380, is these aircraft have either got or are having retrofitted auto TCAS systems. So we're already seeing this kind of more confidence in, in the yeah. computer than we are in, in, in necessarily a human being in certain circumstances. A bit like in your car, you know, when you go over the line, it'll, it'll sort of auto another example. UCL um, from their Pearl is their People uh, Environment Research Lab are doing some great work on what happens when people take over from an autonomous vehicle. Um, they've got a simulator in the facility where you are in an autonomous vehicle, all of a sudden it asks you to take control. And the results are not great for people taking over in that moment of sort of 
panic <laughs> yes. um, at the moment. No. So there, there's a lot of uh, research going on in other modes of autonomous transport as well that can be carried over. I think it's worth to differentiate as well. If we're talking about AI, the approach that we've taken is that we use deterministic modes of AI. I, you know what goes in and what comes out, and that can be predicted 100%. When you're talking about AI in terms of neural net and machine learning, you've got a high confidence level of what comes out. And as far as aviation regulations concerned, that's not good enough. So EASA, for instance, have got a roadmap which, which talks about using other forms like non-deterministic uh, modes of AI starting in 2035. So it's worth remembering that commercial aviation works really well with humans, which are flawed elements, but also brilliant elements which keep the system together. But there is a very well mapped out certification route that exists already. So we don't need to start dragging in AI, certainly to control the aircraft. There's certainly application in a broader sense, I think, in this new world, but certainly machine learning and neural nets are going to take quite a bit of maturing before the yeah, core is, part of the system. Yeah, there's something really exciting. Another use of AI is how can you make more use of the data that you're collecting using drones? So um, we work with a number of clients across sort of national critical infrastructure who do a lot of inspection work using using drones of their assets and environmental organizations who are responsible for looking after wildlife populations and um, our countryside and coastline. And they're starting now to use AI to classify automatically either the condition of their assets and be able to preemptively determine whether they need to take action to repair something before it fails, yeah. which is really, really important if you think of um, infrastructure such as the electrical grid, you know, avoiding blackouts, avoiding power failures. And then on the environmental side of things, there's the ability to manage wildlife populations and natural environments much more efficiently because they can do things like automatically count seal populations, bird bird populations and then um, start to put in strategies to manage them which is much more efficient much quicker than your traditional methods it might be a pair of binoculars on a boat looking counting manually well, I, I don't know some earth observation from satellites presumably you can do sort of a lot of these stuff i mean what are the benefits of actually having a drone doing something that are, that are just proximity just uh, yeah just yeah. Pro yeah there's there's so much you can do with satellites satellite technology is obviously mind-boggling yeah. but it's nothing like having something Actually, right 100 there, meters away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you talk about sort of infrastructure monitoring, using INSAR satellite imagery, you can look at the movement of an object to you know, three decimal places of a millimeter um, from, from space. That's ridiculous. However, you know, which is great <laughs> for looking at how the top of a bridge is moving. Yeah. But seeing underneath that bridge is something that you, know, you would want a drone to do that optical inspection. Yeah. You know, there's huge savings that can be made um, by utilizing satellites um, and drones just by not having to send people mm. out at the end mm. of the day. And again, all of that feeds back into that net zero picture by eliminating, you know, carbon-based travel to yeah. you know, to these areas. So Yes, no, I can see how that works. One of the other fears, and we, we alluded to it at the beginning, is this fear of security and safety. Is there a danger that drones are going to be, I mean, could you sort of catch criminals with drones? Is there a way of monitoring people? Or, or it, it, does that something, is that something that has to be kind of looked at a little bit closer 
I mean, there are some use cases that are happening now where, as Liam alluded to, you know, these drone in a box type solutions that can be mounted in busy city centres. The police can then use them if there is a criminal or if something's happening. They yes, can send I mean, the drone up in a minute. With face and recognition technology and everything else. And potentially. Potentially. There's also the more basic sort of thermal sensing as well. So at night time, you may be able to track a criminal and ultimately having that sort of eye in the sky mm. that can then allow the police teams on the ground to coordinate and manage and ultimately hopefully catch that person. Do the, and do the police use drones? Have they talked about drones? Do yeah, you? they've started using in a right. small scale, and I think that's going to be an increasing uh, an area of expansion. But again, you know, we talked earlier on, it's not the technology, it's how that's used. I mean, the Information um, Commissioner's Office has got some pretty tight legislation about how information can be used. So I think that's probably that sits in that area. What what the drone uh, UAV community can provide is is, is platform, platforms with a level of flexibility and operational capability, which just hasn't existed before. Yeah, and the fire service as well, using yeah. them in a big way by being able to put up a drone, look at what the situation is, and then deploy their resource accordingly down to tracking their people within a fire. Um, so the, the fire service are using those um, you know, within the UK. London yeah. Fire Brigade has a drone team. I suppose the exciting thing as well with, with all of this is, is the actual drones themselves. They can come in all different shapes and sizes depending on what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in fact, that's the way that regulations are going. When we look at SORA, these specific operational risk assessments that the CEA are going to be introducing. Oh, they were happy with that acronym, weren't they? I know. They were like, I know. Yes, it sounds like it. a, it like sounds flying, like a something you can have for breakfast, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. so I'm not, a, bit of, a bit of milk, I'm a sore, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm good for yeah. set up for the day. No, so what, what that's saying is basically, depending on how intensely populated the ground is, and depending on how dense the airspace usage above you, you need an aircraft that's got, X capability. Mm. So the denser it is, the more risk there is, mm. you need a more capable aircraft. And so that basically replicates the fact there's a whole plethora of size and capability and performance levels that, mm. uh, that are available. Yeah, and in my head, I, I sort of split it up into platform and payload when you, when you think of what's flying in the sky. So your platform is what's, is what's carrying the payload and the payload is what is delivering the value. And what we're seeing now is payloads are becoming smaller and more and more powerful. So what the police used to have to use a helicopter for, they can now use a drone. So you've got huge benefits there, whether it's cost benefits, more flexibility, and lower CO2. So, you know, huge benefits in sensors becoming smaller and smaller as well. I think that that sort of size of drone thing is also, to some extent, country dependent. If you look in the UK, there are, I think it's sub 100 private helicopters in the UK. If you look at Sao Paulo and Brazil, they have the highest usage of personal helicopters, I think globally. So those you know, EVTOL sky taxis, they are unsurprisingly seeing mm. huge interest from places like Sao Paulo, mm -hmm. from you know, Dubai, where helicopters are ubiquitous. Yeah. Here in the UK, it's not such a, a, a ubiquitous technology just due to the size of the UK uh, and the density of population centres here. I mean, it, what Liam brings up in terms of that sensor capability shrinking and that, and that onboard capability to see other drones, other aircraft, that is absolutely key because what it allows the UAV industry to do is to integrate into the current airspace system. Well, that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. Yes, this integration. How? What are your thoughts on that? How there's, that there's, two, there's two basic 
extreme schools of thought. One is that you carve your own tunnels of segregated airspace and you yeah. put your drone in it and everybody stays out of your way. I, I, I have to say from a from my experience in aviation, that's on its own a, a naive assumption because airspace is rare. Uh, you've got other space, other airspace users and you sometimes can't stop either nefarious or accidental penetration of airspace. So what we need is, is, is aircraft that are capable of existing to present day standards using the present day airspace system, which is flawed, but highly effective. You know, if you, you go flying in a commercial aircraft today, it takes you over 70,000 years. If you flew in an aircraft every single day before it kills you, it's an ultra safe system. So we, I think the industry has a lot to learn from what's gone before. And I think that's where the focus should lie. When am I going to be seeing drones as a kind of regular thing rather than just the odd one every few weeks? I wouldn't like to put a date on when you, you'll start to see, you know, there's there's lots of dates that say by 2032 yeah. well, we'll when's see. When's it going to be normalised, I suppose? I, I think part of it is, and this is part of what we're hoping to achieve at Westcott, is having drones in the sky, whether they're doing anything useful or not. So people see them, so people get used yeah, to them. Yeah. I think that is a large part of you know, getting over that public perception barrier is exposing people to these drones. There's some great work going on from people like the Drone Industry Action Group and uh, the Future of Flight uh, Innovation Group um, under DFT that are looking at how we expose the general public to drones more regularly to, mm. to improve that public perception. But yeah, I, I think most of the, the research uh, and forecasting that's gone on so far has given a by 2030, by 2032, Type argument, not. It's not a kind by, of by 2024. Kind of we'll see. It's always this not many. It's always 30 years away. It's not. One we of will those. see Absolutely. something. And I think, yeah, one of the key nuts to crack, as Anthony alluded to, is that how do you integrate an uncrewed aircraft with yeah. crewed aircraft, and how do you do that safely? What are the yeah. rules? Yeah. How does that work? And you know, unified traffic management, everything working together, communicating, is both a technical challenge. It's also a regulatory challenge. There's some really exciting projects going on. There's one called Skyway, which is essentially a drone corridor, and they're using a range of sensors so sensors mounted onto the drones themselves that can gain that situational airspace picture adsb that is transmitting and receiving information about other aircraft direction of travel speed altitude and also a range of ground-based sensors as well all forming that kind of robust airspace picture so you can trust that you know where uncrewed aircraft is and crewed aircraft can can manage and work in that airspace and everyone can kind of use it you're not segregating you're not building those brick walls in the sky mm. um, you're unifying all of the traffic together integrating yeah exactly if only somebody would write a book about some of this stuff <laughs> so uh yeah uh, a <laughs> month ago uh, we launched mcgraw hill launched a book i was the lead author for on commercial aviation safety and the uncrewed element is massive when we started researching the book and what people wanted to talk about. And, and particularly, as Liam's has talked about, well, both Liam's about the, the, this integration thing. Okay, how do we make these things as safe as a current system? And in fact, can we use technology? Can we use innovative thought to make the system even safer? Mm. That's a big part. But read the book, Commercial Aviation I'll, Safety Edition 7. It's funny, my dad, my dad was a 747-400 captain back in the day. And I remember years ago, you know, talking to him about, will, will we ever get rid of pilots? And he was like, no, you'll never, ever have an aircraft without somebody on board. 
and I believed him. But now I'm like, mm, actually, maybe my dad was I, wrong. I don't know. We were look, not to, to take it out of the the air and onto the seas. We were looking at uh, autonomous water taxis. And one of the things we were told that would be an obstacle for having an autonomous water taxi is there would be nobody on board to hand out life jackets. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't count on pilots disappearing just I yet. Know, th but things like self-driving cars, we can just about get our heads around. Self-driving water taxis, that's fine because you can sort of jump in, you can jump overboard and you'll be all right. But planes It's are a like very different crikey. market we're talking about. So commercial aviation is, you know, you're not going to replace automatic because the marginal cost of having a human crew up there and all the advantages that that uh, brings. Cocktails. You put cocktails, that's international sort of travel, yeah. and just charming the pants off people, that sort of thing, yeah. So when you're talking about the UAV world coming in, it's addressing a different market. So we looked at the eVTOL world, you alluded to earlier on, Dallas. We estimate that companies like Lilium or Vertical... This is or Vertical, vehicle, yeah, so vertical takeoff and landing. If they took the pilot out, yeah. the pilot out, they could save themselves on their business model that they submitted to the US Securities and Exchange Bureau, they can save themselves around a million dollars a year. So in that world, it makes an awful lot of sense to get the, in, in that scale of aircraft where you can put five, six, seven people in, take a pilot out, you've got an extra seat and less weight. When you're look, looking at something like a, an A350, taking the pilots out just doesn't make business sense in any way. So it's, it's an entirely different concept. So I think pilots are going to be, there's a decent career yet for anybody going Good. into the industry. Well, that's important. Hey, listen, we're out of time. We haven't solved the big problem, which is what are we going to call these things? We don't like drones. I think, unfortunately, I think it's going to be drones, isn't it? Because it's kind of stuck. There. UAS is another one. Uncrewed UAS, aerial systems. Yeah. Uh, so a that's bit. a commonly used one. We, could, we should have a Blue um, Peter competition. Yeah. 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 It's a Blue Peter yeah, solves we all need to agree on all, something. We've nicked all the good Latin words, though, like <laughs> volant. Judging yeah, by what elegant. they've called the, the the boats, things like Boaty McBoatface, I, I, I don't have would, huge public no, confidence yeah, yeah, yeah. in what Drone, we're doing. Drone face, yeah. maybe. Yeah. 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 That's not going to work. Anyway, thank you very much to Liam's and Anthony for coming in and talking about drones. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Thank Thomas. you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your company. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, you can visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.